1: I think that we live in like an either-or world. Either-or is kind of how we're taught to think. And so with Thanksgiving right around the corner, Christmas right around the corner, we're gonna conduct a little science experiment in here. And those of you online can join us. You're like, wait, what? All right. How many of you are sweet potato people? How many of you are mashed potato people? Okay, so maybe we're not quite so eager either-or. Alright, how many of you are cranberry sauce in a can, people? They're like, that one, you know what I'm talking about. How many of you are like, I want it like with the berries and the thing in there. How many of you are like, no cranberry sauce for me? No, that's not an applause line. One more, like looking a little further into Christmas. Um, I'm not even going to ask your opinion on this, because I don't care, because I'm right. There are those of you that wait all year for eggnog, and there are those of you that don't know Jesus yet. So eggnog people, where are my eggnog people? There you go. Thank you. All right. We're either or people. Ha. I think it's tempting to believe the extremes, right? Like either this or that. I think it's tempting to believe not just with tastes and things like that, but I think it's tempting to believe that about our own identities sometimes. When you look really deep into it, it's tempting to believe that we're either who we are on our best days, when everything's going great, or we are who we really are on our worst days, when we're listening to the voice of shame and all that stuff. Which one are we? Are we this one, or are we this one? (laughs) This is our seventh and final week, actually, in our teaching series, Through the Life of David, David broken and Beloved, This morning we find ourselves with David near the end of his life Asking this question Who am I? Who am I really? At this point with seven decades over his shoulder Best days and worst days Really high highs and really low lows He's nearing the end And in the waning days of a long and very filled life God has one more lesson he wants to teach this king (laughs) And it's a lesson that starts in longing Passes through pain And ends with a promise that's too good to be believed So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 24 You can turn there, flip there, scroll there 2 Samuel chapter 24 This is the last book in Samuel's two-volume historical account Of the early days of Israel's monarchy Text this morning where we're going to be breaks it into just three pieces. The first piece, what David does. This is verses 1 through 9. You could really call it David's search for meaning if you want to get a little cerebral about it. Then second, what's God's response to this whole thing? The second piece. And then the third weird piece is the purchase of a threshing floor, which we'll get to. So first, just to get us acclimated a little bit, um, it's important to know where we are in in scripture when we dive in. Um, Scripture is written in such a way for us to pay attention to what I'll call the seams, the seams, S-E-A-M-S, where one thing is becoming something else. We notice seams in our natural life, the seam when fall becomes winter, right? Happened this week almost. Twilight, where day slips into night. The seams are important because what was on stage is fading, and what will be is approaching. Here's the point. God often gives us a very unique glimpse into his plan at the seams. And so where we'll be today, 2 Samuel 24, there's actually three seams that line up. First, there's the seam of David's life. David is 70 And he kind of has the idea that he's heading for home. It's wonderfully tempting to imagine, isn't it, that that young, lithe, 15-year-old arm that slung stones at a giant. Now maybe pops a little bit. (laughs) Is that a touch of arthritis in there, David? That strong, tenor voice, the young psalm singer, is now softened and seasoned and maybe a little more gravelly than it was. The hair is grayer, the laugh lines are deeper. The shepherd boy has become the king, and he's looking to hand things off, and he wants to transition well. So there's the seam of David himself. But then the second seam, there's the seam of the kingdom, Israel. Remember, 15 years earlier, there was David and Saul before that. Israel was leaderless, like sheep without a shepherd. And now this king, who has led God's people for decades, he's brought them into stability and prosperity. And there's this question of who's going to follow David. Even within David's house, there's uncertainty and there's a lot of contention. And that pending instability, like any transition, is kind of making people a little bit nervous. Third scene, though, and this is the most easy to see. The third scene, we're nearing the end of Samuel's two-volume work. We call it first and second. There you go. Bible's easy. See? Now here's the thing. Endings are really important, aren't they? I don't care if it's a novel, a short story, a poem, whatever. The end matters. A good ending closes out the characters. It gathers all the loose ends so everybody lives happily ever after. Here's what I wanted to watch for. As we walk through the text this morning, the ending is weird. And as Samuel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is about to close out his two-volume work, he ends with this really strange scene, which we'll get to. And at first, the ending doesn't seem to fit. It's like jamming that last puzzle piece into place. Like, what is this doing here? But the scene where Samuel leaves off and sets the table for what's to come is incredibly intentional. It's really strange, but it's also unbelievably beautiful. And so sit tight for that. Let's pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to take the first third of this text. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, and here's what David says. He says, go, number Israel and Judah. So he wants to take a census. The king said to Joab, who's been with David for decades now, the commander of the army who was with them, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know (laughs) the number of my people. But Joab said to the king, my Lord, or may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? What a great question. But the king's word prevailed. You're meant to see some verbal arm wrestling there against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, began from Aror to the city in the middle of the valley toward Gad to Jazir. They came to Gilead to Kadesh, the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, came to the fortress of Tyre, all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to Negev of Judah and Beersheba. All that means is they surveyed the entire kingdom. That's all you need to know. <laughs> when they had gone through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, almost 10 months to do this census. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Okay, so David takes a census. It's actually a little more complicated than that. First question we've got to ask. Before we get to anything else. Did you catch the pattern here? By now you know, David's life kind of runs in rhythms and patterns. He's got some predictable patterns. And see if you can pick up on this one. First, David issues a command. He says, go, number Israel. Go, Find out about that girl on the rooftop. Second, a servant expresses objections. You sure you want to do this, Joab says. Isn't that Bathsheba? Third, David prevails through force. It says the king's word prevailed, but David sent and took her. Fourth, a servant obeys, so they went out. So messengers went out, and then fifth, tragedy follows. We hear the faint but still very present echo of a long ago spring porch 20 years earlier to this scene. It would seem that David, once again, grabbed by this deep-seated insecurity, is slipping into his familiar pattern. Now that's textually interesting, maybe. It's literarily compelling. But I think we're supposed to see something, and here it is. I don't mean to sound flippant, but here's something I've noticed. After a while, sin just gets really boring. Anybody else with me on that one? Think about it. You don't have to turn to the person next to you. This is not going to be a group project. But think about, like, whatever your, like, sin of choice is. We all kind of got our poison, right? So, like, pick your poison. It, isn't it boring, Isn't it predictable? It's the same thing over and over again. And that's one of sin's greatest deceptions is it promises something new and interesting, but it quickly slips into tired late night reruns. Like I've seen this before. Sin is a broken record. It's a familiar song attaching to very familiar wounds over and over again. It just gets really predictable. So what happens with David? Take a look in verse 10. Because at this point, there's just a census. Verse 10, David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. Stop right there. David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, oh, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. We're going to get to what this is in a minute. Because at first glance, this is like, What? Taking a census is sin? What's that about? We'll get to that, but, because it's not, but I want to zero in on that phrase where he says, His heart struck him. That phrase is used only one other place in the entire Old Testament. You want to know where it is? 1 Samuel chapter 24. Here's what it says. Let's see if you remember this scene David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. And even his words here, where he says, I've sinned greatly against the Lord. Does that sound like anything else? Psalm 51, after Bathsheba, where he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Oh God, he's predictable in sin. He's predictable in confession. At least he's consistent. (laughs) But here's the question lurking underneath this. So, Taking a census is a sin? What is this about, David? Is that what we're supposed to take away from this? Because it kind of seems like what's going on. No. Taking a census is not a sin. To get a sense of what's happening here now and what will happen later, we've got to zoom out and get the big picture. So follow me on this one. Back in Genesis chapter 14, you don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 14. Genesis 14, okay, 14 generations earlier, God pulled David's great, 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 great grandpa, Abraham, out of his tent one night. He says, Abraham, come on here, I want to talk to you. Abraham, I've got plans for you, God said. He says, I'm going to make your family like the stars in the sky. Go look up there. Count them. That's what your family is going to be like, Abraham. I'm promising this to you because I love you. I'm going to make your family endure forever. Count them. That's what it's going to be like. If you can count it, it's going to be like sand on the seashore, Abraham. I'm going to do this for you. I'm with you, and I'm not leaving That was hundreds of years earlier. I'm going to bless your family. And now here's David. Nearing the end of his life. Wondering, what has he done? What kind of legacy will he leave? And he says, I need to number the people. I need to know. I need to know. A little sympathy for David here, though. If you heard that your God made your great-great-grandfather a promise hundreds of years earlier and then hasn't done anything. Wouldn't you be tempted to like provide yourself a little (laughs) self-assurance? You're like, I need to know that God's still there. I need to know that he's still working. I need to know. Because in David's mind, maybe I've blown it. Maybe I've given up. Maybe I've gone too far. Maybe it's all over. Wouldn't you be interested in cultivating a little assurance for your very troubled heart? Here's the thing. The census isn't the problem. David's heart is. And so often, isn't that the case? That what's wrong out here in my life is tied to what's missing in here. You feel that? Here's my point for David. If you can find a way to measure it, you can probably find a way to idolize it. And that's what he's looking for. David's insistence on external security calls into question the faithfulness of God's promise way back here and even the faithfulness of God himself. And so David has to like scramble the jets, get everything together to make sure that he has peace in his mind before his eyes close on this earth. Follow me a minute. The human dilemma is not really that hard to figure out, guys. We're actually pretty basic creatures, Here's something true about every person, anywhere, ever, doesn't matter what culture, you, me, here's the deal. We all know that we need something. We think we know what that something is. And we think we know how to get it. But the gospel invites us to discover that what we really need is God and the way we get God is through his provision. It's not about numbers for David. It never is, is it? Dr. Kurt Thompson is—he's um, a Christian psychiatrist. He's a therapist. He's an author. He wrote two tremendous books recently that I would commend to you. One is called "The Soul of Desire," and the other is called "The Soul of Shame." And he lives at this intersection of like neuroscience and spirituality and trying to understand why do we do what we do? What are we looking for? What is it that we want? What drives our behavior? Especially when so many of us have like shame wrapped around our ankle. Turns out that in his research, he's discovered that most human longing can be boiled down to four basic needs and I'm going to give them to you because this is super important. Most human longing can be boiled down to four basic needs, and they all start with the letter S, if this is helpful. The first core need that we have as humans is to be seen. We want to be seen, which goes way beyond being like, looked at or noticed or observed. Being seen means being recognized for who we actually are, our true selves. As infants, we come into this world needing someone to see us as precious, to see us as a being who matters. We want to be seen. Second thing, the second core human need, we need to be soothed, soothed. We know this as kids, that if I'm an infant and I'm crying, I need to be soothed. But this is still true for us as adults. I need someone more powerful than me to let me know that they are interested in bringing about my well-being. This is getting kind of deep, isn't it? Third core need. To be seen, soothed, but then also to be safe. We want to be safe. There comes a point when we realize that the world is a dangerous place and it's not always safe out there and we need someone to let us know that everything I'm afraid of, even the stuff in me, is going to be okay. We want to be safe. And then the fourth core human need is those all build on each other. The last one is we want to feel secure. We want to have a healthy sense of ourselves and the world around us, the relationships that we have And when we are, we can move securely into what God has for our lives. Now, I am not a counselor. I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So if I take one more step in that direction, I'm going to get out of my depth really quick. But when I hear those words as a pastor, seen, soothed, safe, and secure, when I hear those words, here's what I see. Those words are just part of what it means to be human. They're always with us. They're not infantile. They're not just developmental. I think we're going to have those things until we're dead. If you're married, you want to be seen by your spouse, right? Not just noticed or looked at. Really recognized for who you are. If you're in the hospital, you want to be soothed by somebody who's going to tell you it's going to be okay. When you are threatened by something or someone in your life, you just want to feel safe. Like you want to feel protected, and when when you have those healthy rhythms and healthy relationships in place, then you feel secure. Now, here's why I bring that up. Let's pull this back to the text. Take a look at David's life. The overworking king who never has enough. This is not about kingdom expansion. He just wants to be seen. He wants to be recognized. Bathsheba on the porch. That wasn't about sex. He just wants to feel soothed. Covering up Uriah's murder was not about dishonesty, restoring his reputation, not at its core. He just wants to feel safe. The census really isn't about numbers at all. He just wants to know his security. Discontented leadership, illicit sex with Bathsheba, covering up Uriah's murder, taking a sense if if, if those tactics don't help David feel seen, soothed, safe, and secure any more than eating pretzels would help quench my thirst. But what we do is we watch David's life David, a man with these profound needs that live so close to the surface, wandering through life, going, oh, how can I get this need met? Oh, I know, Bathsheba, how can I feel safe? Oh, Uriah, we're going to cover this thing up. We're watching a thirsty man jam pretzels into his mouth, asking, why am I so thirsty? (laughs) And then he writes a psalm about it, and he goes, oh, yeah, the Lord. (laughs) David could have never lost another battle. It isn't going to help him feel seen. David could have had a thousand Bathshebas. It isn't going to help him feel soothed. He could have covered up every last one of his faux pas and had a perfect sterling silver reputation. Still isn't going to help him feel safe. He could have been king over the largest kingdom on earth. He still wouldn't have felt secure. Imagine for a minute that you're sitting eyeball to eyeball with David. Nearing the end of his life, he's rounding third, heading for home. And he can look in the rearview mirror and he goes, yeah, I've built and I've bulldozed. (laughs) I've had high highs and I've had low lows. I've been over here and I've been over here. If you could ask him the question, David, what is it right now that you really want? I don't think he'd say, you know, I want to know how big my army is. I don't think he'd say, yeah, I want to know how many fighting men I've got in my kingdom. Yeah, I'd like to know the square mileage of this realm that I have. Restored? I don't think he'd say anything like that. I imagine he'd say something much more human. He'd probably want to say something like, I just want to know that my life mattered, and I'm not sure that it has. I just want to know that I've made a difference, and I don't know that I have. I just want to know that my Father is pleased with me, and I'm not sure that He is. Do you know what those concerns feel like? David is just a very public and very uncomfortably close reminder to all of us that we are deeply needful people and we are really bad at filling those needs. Because the only one who can give voice to that meaning is God. I think we need to understand this, that the gospel message has the audacity to insist that I am a person of profound needs and then that those needs are only ever, forever, met in Christ alone. Now, back to the text. Verse 11. After David's confession, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Okay, so this is a guy in David's life who has some spiritual authority. And he said, Go say to David, thus says the Lord. Now this is where this text gets really tough. Three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So this is the Lord's punishment for David. This is hard. So Gad came to David and told him, said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you or your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David's mind, here's the the layout of those three things. In the first, if there is famine, well, that's going to affect the lower classes in David's kingdom. And he goes, no, because then I'll be safe and I don't want that. The second, well, I'm militarily really strong and I'm here in my palace, so I'm going to be safe. This is going to affect... Everybody else but me. Here's what he says in verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Old Testament word means emotional labor. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man, which is his way of saying, okay, a plague. Okay. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people of Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men, that's soldiers, and so God strikes at the heart of what David was trying to secure. That's really hard for me, by the way. When I come across that, it's like a speed bump, and I go, ugh. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough. Stay your hand and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor, we'll come back to this, of Arunah, the Jebusite. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, behold, I have sinned, and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, he's talking about his people, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now what is all this? You've got this whole thing bookended by David's confession and this masterstroke of godly leadership, finally, David starts to see himself as a shepherd and he says, enough, take it from me. Come on, it's my sin, take it from my house. And then the angel of God kind of parks at this place called the threshing floor. Now here's how this hits me and it probably hits you the same way. This doesn't seem right to me, honestly. At first reading, this seems like over-justice like God's tightening the screw too hard. God smites 70,000 of his chosen people just because of one king's insecurity. What is that? And if the story ended there, we would be right to question God's commitment to mercy. But the story doesn't end there. As hard as this is, With all that out there, the scene now moves to a very strange place because what happens next is absolutely mind-blowing. God takes David by the hand and he answers all of those deep needs that we talked about in a way that David never expected. God shows himself to be overwhelmingly kind and this whole next scene is shot through with grace. Take a look at verse 18. Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. We'll come back to understand what that is. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, so they're coming up a hill, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out, paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, why is my Lord the king come up to his servant? Like, what are you doing on my threshing floor, dude? You're the king. David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arunah said to David, well, I mean, fine, this sounds great. Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arunah, listen to the character here. No, I, I will not. Or no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea from the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Okay, what is all this? we got this guy named Aranah, whoever he is, a threshing floor, whatever that is. And then David, it kind of seems like he's on a used car lot a little bit, like arguing with this dude, like haggling. This is this missing puzzle piece. And if you're reading through First and Second Samuel, and you got got like all this great stuff about David, and you're like, why are we here? <laughs> this seems wildly out of place. If God's want, God wants me to come up with something, I'm coming up empty. Hang with me. This is really beautiful. First off, what's a threshing floor? Every first-century wheat farmer, and every wheat farmer centuries before, had a threshing floor. Wheat farmers want wheat. But there's a problem. Chaff, chaff, which is this useless, non-nutritious fiber, grows in with the wheat. And so these guys found a solution. Because chaff weighs less than wheat, it's easily separated by the wind. And so threshing floors are built on high places in cities, usually a hillside, where there's a lot of wind that come up from the valley. And so farmers throw this chaff-wheat mix into the air, the chaff blows away, and the wheat remains. This doesn't last. This does. So God brings David to this threshing floor because he wants to teach him a lesson about provision. David, this is where wheat is sifted and harvest is revealed. David, this is where you will be sifted and your true story revealed. A threshing floor is where you measure what matters. Where farmers go to the threshing floor, they're asking questions. Questions like, did what I plant back there make a difference? Let's see. Have I secured a good and lasting future for my people? Let's see. What has all my effort amounted to? What I successful? A threshing floor is the place of reckoning. And so this is a giant object lesson for David, but it gets better. There are hundreds of threshing floors all throughout Israel, Why this one? Is there something special about this one? Arunah the Jebusite. Not a very popular Bible character. Any of you expecting parents looking for baby names? Don't go with Arunah. Just a weird one. He doesn't show up very often. What's this one about? Turns out this threshing floor has a really important history. We're meant to look backward. Something important happened at this exact spot 14 generations earlier. Now follow me. after God called Abraham out of his tent back in Genesis 14 and he made him this promise that his family is going to last forever God led him to a rocky hillside Genesis 22 where he asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac and you know how the story ends right? if you're familiar with your Old Testament God provides another sacrifice in the thicket that's Genesis 22. Now put this together. That hillside from Genesis 22 is this threshing floor. God knows your needs, and God always provides. The rock where God provided everything that would secure Abraham's future right when he was tempted to doubt it is the rock that David's standing on right now, right when he is tempted to doubt his future. God brings David, 14 generations later, back to the same place that his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa Abraham stepped on. And he learned that God knows your needs and God always provides. This is God saying, David, I've brought you here to remember that I've provided before and I will provide again because I am the God of perfect provision. And so this threshing floor has a present purpose for David, it has a past purpose for David. But guys, this gets even better. I can't wait. This space not just is looking here and it's not meant to just look backward. This place, this mountaintop turned threshing floor, this place of provision, also looks forward. Now buckle up because this gets really, really beautiful. Right now, it's a threshing floor. And David builds an altar and he sacrifices a lamb, restoring his relationship with God. But David is not the only king who will offer a sacrifice on this seemingly obscure patch of land outside Jerusalem. Because one day, one day, on this same rocky hillside, another king far out into the future will set foot here the same hillside. And this one-day king, who is elsewhere called the heir to David's throne, will, like David, affect the lives of many. Only where David's disobedience brings death, this king's obedience will bring life. And where David's sacrifice stopped a plague of pestilence, this king's sacrifice will stop the plague of sin. And where David offers a lamb, this king will offer himself as the lamb. This hillside where Abraham, generations earlier, raised the knife to sacrifice his son, this hillside where David now gives this peace offering to God is the same hillside where Jesus generations later will offer himself god's real mercy to david and to david's people and to all people will ultimately be fulfilled in his ultimate provision of jesus the messiah do you see what's being set up in motion here in this text Do you see why Samuel chooses to close out his two-volume work in this way? You see what this random little bit of threshing floor sets up. Seeking his self-security, David really offers his eventual heir, the king, by buying this threshing floor, he sets the stage for another greater king who will, centuries later, be given as the ultimate, triumphant, forever provision for God's people. Is it any wonder that Matthew's gospel... The beginning of the Christmas story, which is right around the corner for us, begins this way. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's more than just a plug for our next teaching series. That's an invitation to worship the king. So what does all this mean? What does God want us to see? God knows your needs and God Always provides. So, what are we going to make of all of this? I want to close with a couple of points, just a few. Mm-hmm. You've got a census, a plague, and a threshing floor. What does this have to do with here and now? There are three gospel implications that you need to know. And so, in just a minute, our choir is going to come back on and we're going to have a few moments of reflection, but I want to make sure that we push these out here. First one, in Christ. You are not your failures. I think this is the raw goodness of the gospel. God knows our failures and our shortcomings. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about it this way. God is way more realistic about you than you are about you. (laughs) He's way more realistic. I, I am way too optimistic about who I actually am. And God looks at me and sees me, warts and all, and loves me anyway. Quoting Kurt Thompson, listen what do I really want I want to be loved I want to be seen I want to be known I want to be wanted I want to be wanted by Jesus Jesus including the parts of me that I hate the most and Jesus is saying I'm all in those parts of you that you hate the most I'm not afraid of that and you can't make me leave the room oh I love that that's just good gospel that you could be known for who you are, failures and foibles, shortcomings and sins, to be seen for who you really are. Your actual self cannot dissuade the Lamb of God from loving you. You can't convince him. Your actual self, who you actually are, and so if you're listening this morning and the first word that you pick on yourself is unwanted, mistake, unloved, sinner, and dirty, you need to hear me that the good news of the gospel says that even your darkest shame cannot repel the Lord. In Christ, you are not your failures. That's gospel implication number one. Number two, in Christ, you're not your successes. (laughs) So let's flip the coin over a little bit. The more I move through life, the more I see this subtle lie at work in me and then also in you because I know it's there. Here's the lie. If I do good, then I am good. If I do something worthwhile, then I become worthwhile. My security rests on my performance. And I think David felt this, this overperforming, reputation-seeking, legacy-preserving, never-ending quest to prove himself to himself, right? So easy to believe the hype. If I had to summarize David's internal spiritual battles, which I hardly need to tell you are way more complex than the external ones, every one of them is a battle over identity, one more quote, this one from Henry Nowen, he says this: "We are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what others think of us. Coming home to the gospel is claiming this truth that I am the beloved child of a loving creator. We no longer have to beg for permission from the world to exist." Third truth: In Christ, you are seen soothed, safe, and secure. So choir, if you guys want to come on out, I want to read these words from John's gospel. And I want to use these as an opportunity just to cause us to reflect. John 10, which once upon a time was the chapter that changed my life. Listen to this. You want to be seen? Listen to John 10, verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls to his own sheep by name and he leads them out. They follow him because they know his voice. You are known by the Lord. You are seen. You are recognized for who you are. How about soothed? Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and he will find pasture. You're ready to be entered into the care of your shepherd. How about safe? This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. How about secure? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So if you're feeling threatened, you're feeling unsafe, the king says, here I am. Here I am. Take him at his word. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple of moments just to sit. A lot of times we stand immediately. I just want you to sit as our choir leads us in this last song. And at a point, Gary's going to gesture and if you want to, if you feel free, when Gary asks you to stand, you can. Um, And then I'll be up to close this out. Let me pray. Lord, we do say thank you for your goodness. Say thank you that you are a shepherd, that you care for us. And we are not our failures, we are not our successes, but we are seen soon safe and secure in you. We love you. Be with us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media.